Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. John 8, 1 through 11. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he went to the temple again, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down and began to teach them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, making her stand in the center. Teacher, they said to him, this woman was caught in the act of committing adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? They asked this to trap him in order that they might have evidence to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and started writing on the ground with his finger. When they persisted in questioning him, he stood up and said to them, the one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stooped down again and continued writing on the ground. When they heard this, they left one by one, starting with the older men. Only he was left with the woman in the center. When Jesus stood up, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord, she answered. Neither do I condemn you, said Jesus. Go, and from now on, do not sin anymore. I know Cody already mentioned it, but welcome back, students. Woot, yeah. Uh, enough parking on the hill is a worthwhile sacrifice to have you back. So uh, we've missed you a ton. So welcome back. Uh, we're really glad that you're here. Now, this morning is a bit of a, a different kind of message. Honestly, it's a, it's a kind of message that I have never given. All right. And I'm especially glad that you students are back um, because our text this morning forces us to ask the question, can we trust our Bibles? Can we trust our Bibles? Is the, is the Bible that I have in my hand right now trustworthy? Is it reliable? And we need to ask that question and answer that question because for many of you probably when you uh, were following along in your Bible, if you have a, a modern translation, what you'll notice is that before this text, there's either a note for like a footnote or there are brackets. Now, you might say, what's the big deal? There's brackets, so what? Well, believe it or not, those brackets have caused many people to leave the faith. Those brackets have caused many people who would once claim to be Christians, who would once claim to believe in Jesus, to follow God, all these things, to become agnostic or atheist to totally abandon Christianity, belief in Jesus, trust in the Bible. Like, I don't know how, I don't know how to measure the amount of ink, you know, on a page, but, but that minuscule amount of ink in those brackets have caused many people to leave the faith. And for, may, maybe you've had a professor or maybe you're about to have a professor as classes start up this week, uh, who will use these brackets to convince you that the Bible is unreliable, it's not trustworthy, and, and it should have no more bearing or consequence on your life than Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. So understanding these brackets 
or misunderstanding these brackets for many has been a matter of whether someone continues in the faith or totally abandons their faith. So a little bit of forewarning here is that for the next little bit, we're gonna jump just kind of like right into the deep end on some things, all right? But I I want you to know that, I want you to know that I know that uh, so that hopefully you'll trust me and go, if you'll just stick with me for the next little while, I hope that these brackets, as we understand what they are and what they represent, that these brackets won't do to you what they have done to so many other people. So can we trust our Bibles? Well, first, it's, it's important to understand that your Bible wasn't written in English. Maybe you do that, maybe you didn't, maybe that's new. Like but the Bible was originally written in Hebrew and Greek. The, the Old Testament, mostly written in Hebrew, the New Testament, predominantly written in Greek. And so for anyone who doesn't speak Hebrew or Greek to have a copy of a Bible that they can understand, needed to have those scriptures translated into the language that you speak. So English or Spanish or whatever. And if you've ever learned a second language or a third language, maybe you're bilingual or trilingual, you'll know that translating one language to another isn't quite as simple as just, you know, saying, well, here's this word and we'll just do the English equivalent of that word. Because sometimes there is no English equivalent of that word. And so what translators do is they do their best to get the translation as close as they can from the original language to the language that they're translating it into. That's one. Number two, it's important to understand that before the invention of the, of the printing press in the 1400s, that if you were an ancient writer and you wanted your writings to be, to be published, right? You wanna publish a book. There were no blogs, okay? Like you wanna publish it, you wanna distribute it. The way that you would do that before the printing press is that you would have, you would take your written work to people often called scribes. And these were people whose job was to take what was written and to make a copy of it by hand like crazy, right? Like we don't even, we don't even write short letters, let alone books by hand, right? But this is what would happen. Like, and this, this isn't unique to the, to the Bible. This was any ancient written work that you wanted distributed would be copied by a, someone called a scribe. And as you can imagine, in such a, uh, a human process as scribal transmission, like someone writing it out by hand, from time to time, there, will, there would be errors. There would be spelling errors, you know, discrepancies, like little things like that. There's nothing, there's nothing uh, sinister about this. There's nothing nefarious going on. It's just, it's just a reality of the process that when you have a human transmitting one document to another by hand, there are going to be things uh, that can be a little different. And so as a result of this process, an entire branch of of scholarship emerged called textual criticism. Now, what textual criticism is, is textual criticism basically examines the biblical manuscripts that we have, because we have more than one, that takes the biblical manuscripts that we have, determines when they were written, and then compares those manuscripts with one another, to be able to see based on that comparison, what was original to this writing and what was a scribal error? What was, what was something that was added, left out, misspelled, whatever. And that textual criticism process uh, helps ensure that the, that the current documents that we have are as close to the original documents as you can get. 
And as a result of this kind of scholarly work, as this whole branch of textual criticism, and I'll give you some resources here kind of uh, at the end of our time in the deep end, that if you really wanna kind of nerd out on this, you can go and read some of this stuff for yourself. But as a result of this textual work, most scholars do not think that John 7.53 through John 8.11 was originally part of John's written work. They do not believe that it was original to John's gospel. Now, there's, there's a couple reasons for this. I, I just want to give you four uh, as to why scholars uh, believe this. Okay, so the first one. This section of, of, of text doesn't appear in the earliest uh, New Testament manuscripts that we have. It's not there. And this is very similar to when, maybe you'll remember back when we were in John chapter five, where I pointed out that John chapter five, verse four doesn't exist. It goes from John five, three to John five, five. And there's a, foot, there's a little footnote there that tells you why verse four was not included because it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. That, that, is, that is an indicator of a good translation that, that we try to go with, as, with the earliest manuscripts that we possibly can. So this text this morning was not in the earliest manuscripts that we have. That's the first reason they don't believe it was original to John's writing. The second reason is that when, it, when this text did start showing up was somewhere around the 5th century. In 5th in, in century Greek manuscripts, that's when this, this account started to begin to kind of circulate and be included. And what happened was that uh, as they looked at all the manuscripts, this story is ends up in five different places in the New Testament. Four of those places are in the book of John. One is toward the end of Luke, which means that this is kind of like a text looking for a context. Like if this story was original to John's writing, then there would be no need for it to end up floating around in different places in, or in, in the manuscripts where it first begins to show up. Number three is that this text isn't referenced by the early church fathers. So those who would have been, those who would have understood and understood even the oral tradition of the early church, uh, this, this text didn't show up in the text that those earlier manuscripts have, like I said, in point number one. And then number four is that the style, and this, this is probably the most obvious one if you're just looking at your Bible, the style and the vocabulary is quite a bit different than the rest of the style and vocabulary of the book of John. And especially in the fact that this story totally breaks up the flow of John chapter seven into John chapter eight, right? Like what we have in John chapter seven is this account of Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles. And then all of a sudden this story appears. And then next week when, when Ernie teaches, it'll start off John chapter eight, verse 12, Jesus is declaring to be the light of the world back at the Feast of Tabernacles. This story is kind of awkward right here. Like it kind of, it breaks up the flow of John's writing. So for all of these reasons, I agree with the majority of faithful, conservative, evangelical, uh, inerrancy of scripture believing scholars when they say that this text wasn't original to John's gospel. Now, does that mean that the rest of our Bibles are up for grabs? Does that mean that, well, wait a second, then how, then how can I even trust my Bible? 
That's a great question. Those are great questions. I want to make the case for you this morning that when things like this come up, it actually shouldn't make us trust our Bibles less. It should make us trust our Bibles more. All right. And I'm very aware that my time in the deep end here is, is running thin. Okay. So we'll, we'll go through this pretty quick, but the reason, some of the reasons, not the only reasons, there are more reasons than this. Some of the reasons why you can trust the Bible in your hands is the inspired and errant word of God. Here, here's, here's three reasons. Number one, there are more Greek manuscripts of the New Testament than pretty much any other ancient text. We have more copies of the New Testament than any other ancient text. To give you, to give you some context there, uh, most significant ancient Greek writings, we have about 20 copies of them. Like titles that you would recognize, things that you've heard of in school uh, that, that were ancient documents. There's about 20 copies of that. And we trust their reliability and their validity even with 20 copies. The, you wanna know how many copies the New Testament has? It's just shy of 6,000. 6,000 copies of the New Testament text. Greek manuscripts. Why is that important? That's important because the accuracy of textual criticism actually increases as the number of manuscripts you have to compare against one another increases. Your ability to see discrepancies grows exponentially as you have more manuscripts to compare against one another. And just as kind of like a side note, because you'll probably hear people say, well, the Bible's so full of errors. Uh, It's so full of errors, you can't even trust it. 99% of textual discrepancies of scribal errors, 99%, and I'm not exaggerating in that, 99% of those discrepancies consist of spelling mistakes. So like adding an S where there shouldn't be an S, something's just misspelled. Have you ever done that? Like spelling mistakes, word order. So, so when it says, you know, Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ, that's considered a, a textual variant. Okay, things like that, where it's like, but we know they're talking about Jesus. Word, so word order, maybe, maybe a line was duplicated twice, which is very easy to see. Uh, the, the use of, of, the, of the definite article with proper nouns, so it'd kind of be like me saying, instead of saying Cody did the welcome this morning, I'd say the Cody did the welcome. That'd be weird, we don't talk that way. You know, but like some, things like that, where it's like, we get what you're saying though. Like that's, that is so minuscule indifference. That's 99% of textual variants in, of, of discrepancies of errors that happen in, in the Bible, okay? So when someone says you can't trust the Bible because there are so many errors, what that uninformed statement is referring to are those 99% of scribal mistakes like that. Now, the second reason why you can trust your Bible is that the Bible does what, what nearly no ancient document does. In that when there are significant textual differences between manuscripts, they tell us about it. Like our passage this morning, there's a footnote. John chapter five, verse four. 
There's a footnote. The long ending of the book of Mark. There's, there's a note that says, like, this wasn't in the earliest manuscripts. There, there are some variants here, stuff like that. Like, if, if Bible translators were trying to pull one over on us, they are doing a terrible job because they are telling us exactly when these textual variants happen, which, by the way, don't happen all that much. It's like I said, 99% of them are very easy to spot, and they're very insignificant. Now, the third reason is because no textual variant threatens any significant Christian doctrine. That even the, even the textual variants that, that we have, that are noted, that we're made aware of, none of those threaten anything that is central to the Christian faith. It's not as though these brackets have been placed around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That'd be a totally different scenario because that is a central key. If there is no resurrection from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. We are still in our sins and we are condemned to an eternity. And like if those those brackets are there, now we've got a huge problem. But no textual variant threatens in any way any sort of key Christian doctrine. So can we trust our Bibles? That's the question. I want you to know, based on the evidence, not based on how, I know I'm a pastor and I know I'm supposed to say this, right? Based on the evidence, you can absolutely trust that the Bible that you hold in your hand is the inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word of God. And so what, what, are, what are we to do then with, the, with our text this morning? While I don't think that our passage this morning was original to John's writing, I do believe, and I don't have time to get into why, I do believe that this was a historical event that actually happened, that has been preserved for us to serve as an illustration of a beautiful truth that shows up all throughout the New Testament. To illustrate a truth that doesn't just show up in this, in this text, but shows up all throughout the New Testament. And that truth that this story illustrates is this. It's that in Christ, guilty sinners are not condemned, but are given grace to live in holiness. If you can only remember two things this morning, remember one, I can trust my Bible. And number two, that in Christ, guilty sinners are not condemned, but are given grace to live in holiness. Why do I say that? Well, we see here with this woman caught in adultery that the, Pharise- that the Pharisees and the scribes, the, the religious elite, drag her out in front of Jesus, not because of their great concern for justice or their great concern for people to live according to the law for the glory of God and the purity of the community. They have no concern for that. We see in verse six that their main point in bringing this woman before Jesus is to trap Jesus. They have no concern for her, Right? And once again, what these religious elite are doing is that they are taking the scriptures and they are twisting them in order to try to trap Jesus, in order to use the scriptures for their own purposes. We see this in uh, verse 5 of chapter 8. Here's what they say. In the, law, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, a woman caught in adultery. What do you say? Now, there's already something fishy going on here because... The law doesn't say 
that just the woman caught in adultery should be put to death. The law actually says that the woman and the man, it takes two to commit adultery. So here, even right off the bat, they've only brought the woman. So clearly their concern is not to uphold the law. It's to trap Jesus. But in typical Jesus fashion, which, which is one of the reasons why I do think this is, is historical, is that Jesus flips the tables on them. He turns the tables on them in verse 7 when he says, The one without sin among you should be the first to throw a stone at her. Why is this so clever? Why is this such a clever way for Jesus to respond? See, he doesn't throw out the law of Moses. But what Jesus is doing is he is, is he's saying, if you want to use scripture, then let's use all of scripture. Like in, in this, this is part of, 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 a, of, I believe it's Deuteronomy 24, but also or Leviticus 24, but also Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17 says this, it says, no one is to be executed on the testimony of a single witness. The witness's hands are to be the first in putting him to death and after that, the hands of all the people. See, he doesn't respond to them by saying, who cares about the law of Moses? No, he responds to them by saying, whoever here is a witness to this sin and who is also not, also guilty of this same sin can be the first one to throw the stone. See, it was incredibly difficult to, to execute capital punishment uh, for the Jews because it would be so easy to abuse us. It wasn't, that, it wasn't that you could kind of suspect someone of adultery, that you kind of see them in kind of an interesting situation or you know, see them coming out of the room or going, like this was a, you had to catch them in the act, which was incredibly difficult to do, right? Now I know maybe they didn't have locks on doors, but still that's kind of, that, there's a very high standard for being able to bring this kind of accusation before a group of people, right? And so what Jesus is doing is he's saying, no, 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 You're, you are misinterpreting and misapplying the law because you have to believe he also knew their purposes in bringing this woman before him in the first place, right? And so one by one, their stones began to drop. One by one, from the oldest to the youngest, they walk away, which leaves Jesus and this woman totally alone. Did you see the irony here? The only one with the right to throw the stone was Jesus. But notice what he does. He doesn't throw the stone. He extends grace. He extends grace to guilty sinners. Now at this point, most, I'm not sure I could meet anyone who would be offended by this up to this point, okay? Like, yeah, see, Jesus, Jesus is a God of love, and I like, I like the God of the New Testament. Jesus is all about love and grace and peace, and, and who are you to judge? Like, like, don't you see, if you're without sin, you know, don't throw the first stone. Like, you can't judge anybody, which is totally a misunderstanding of, of the entirety of the teaching of the New Testament on helping other believers, you know, helping us persevere in our faith. Like, yes, take the plank out of your own eye and then go and help them take the speck out of theirs. It doesn't say don't help them at all, right? So like, but this, this is a really convenient kind of truth that, that our culture loves to affirm. But notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say to her, 
neither do I condemn you. Now go and live however you want. He doesn't say, neither do I condemn, neither do I condemn you. And I don't condemn you because it doesn't matter how you live. Who am I to condemn you? Go live however you want. No, what he says is neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, do not sin anymore. Notice the order there. He didn't say, go and sin no more so that you won't be condemned. He says, I don't condemn you. Now, go and sin no more. Was this not the basis of, of the Exodus? Back in Exodus chapter five, the whole reason why God was rescuing his people from slavery and bondage in Egypt was not to just free them from slavery so that they could go and do whatever they wanted, but to free them from slavery so that they could go and worship their God. Have you ever noticed that it's only after God frees his people that he then gives them the law? He doesn't give them the law and go, all right, let's see how you do, and then maybe I'll free you from slavery. No, no. He says, I am freeing you from slavery by my sheer gift of grace because I have chosen you as my own so that you would be my people and I'll be your God. And now as a result of the freedom that I have brought to you, now go live in these ways. This is exactly what Jesus is saying to this woman right here. The grace of God. This is the grace of God toward guilty sinners. You see, Jesus doesn't offer grace to you so that you can then receive grace and go do whatever you want. Jesus offers grace to you so that you will then be free to live in accordance to his good design and commands for your life. You see, we, we, don't, we don't need this story to get the truth of this story. This is the, this is the exact same thing that, that the apostle Paul says in Romans uh, chapter eight, verses one through four. Look at what he says. This is the same truth. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ, because the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do since it was weakened by the flesh, God did. He condemned sin in the flesh. How did he condemn sin in the flesh? By placing it on your back? No, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering in order that the law's requirement would be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What do we see here as this illustration from this woman caught in adultery? What do we see from this passage in Romans chapter eight, verses one through four? We see three things. We see that Jesus frees believers from the penalty of sin. He frees believers from the penalty of sin, that when we were guilty in our sin and shame, when we were standing before God, laid bare, totally exposed, yes, we were guilty. Notice that Jesus does, never says to this woman that she didn't do anything wrong. He never says that. No, she was wrong, laid bare before the crowd. But Jesus, in his sheer grace, doesn't subvert the law. He doesn't throw it away. He doesn't say, no big deal. Like, like, like God's requirements uh, don't matter. No, Jesus doesn't subvert the law. He fulfills it. He looks at this woman and he says, neither do I condemn you. You are not condemned because one day I will take your condemnation. 
I will take the stone of God's condemnation toward your sin so that by my sacrifice, you can receive God's grace and be freed from the penalty of sin. Jesus bore the wrath. He took the rock so that those who trust in him can be freed from the penalty of sin. Jesus frees believers from the penalty of sin. Jesus frees believers from the power of sin, from sin's penalty and from sin's power, that when we are freed by the penalty of sin, by grace through faith, we're also freed from the power of sin, which means that we are no longer slaves to sin, that sin no longer has a hold on us in such a way that we have to say yes to it that we have to follow our fleshly desires, that we have to fall into temptation, that we have to go this direction instead of this. But because of the free gift of grace in Jesus Christ, freeing us from the penalty of sin, the Holy Spirit now lives within us and frees us from sin's power so that we can say no. I don't have to do that. I don't have to make that choice. I don't have to talk that way. I don't have to think those thoughts and I don't have to walk down that path. Which means that that sin in your life that, ha- that seems to have had a death grip on you, seems like you've never been able to shake it. And you begin to wonder like, will I ever change? Like, I can't change. So I'm gonna hide it. I'm gonna live in the darkness, like I can't change. The Holy Spirit of God within you says no. Because God's power lives within you, sin's power has lost its hold on you. We can say no to sin. The Holy Spirit testifies to your spirit that it is only God himself who never changes, which means that you can. Only God doesn't change. For you to say, I'll never change, is to take on to yourself an attribute that only belongs to God. Because God doesn't change, that means that you can by the power of the Holy Spirit, which is greater than the power of sin. He frees believers from the power of sin. And finally, he frees believers for righteous living. See that freeze from, freeze from, freeze for. See, we as modern people tend to think of freedom as like an absence of restriction. That's how we define freedom. The, the, the less restriction we have, the more freedom we have. But don't be, dis- that, that is like, that's such a massive oversimplification of freedom. And here's why. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. So if you only see freedom as an absence of restriction, then you could say, I'm free to eat whatever I want. I'm free to eat a bag of Cheetos. Yes, I know I've referenced Cheetos a lot lately. I don't regret it, all right? (laughs) I'm free to eat a bag of Cheetos every day for the rest of my life. I am free to do that. Now, (laughs) in one sense, yes, that's true. That is true. But you also know that if you live with that definition of freedom that is like the absence of restrictions, that if you do that, if you eat a bag of Cheetos every day, because you have the freedom to do it, then what you will also 
very likely simultaneously be doing is you will be forfeiting your freedom to live a long, healthy life to watch your kids and grandkids grow up. I'm free to eat Cheetos every day. But if you do that, you will die. <laughs> Sooner than you probably would have otherwise. Right? Like, to express this freedom is to then also forfeit this deeper, greater freedom. Isn't it true that our most intimate relationships bring with them a presence of restriction. The reality is, is that uh, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your husband, your wife would not be okay with you expressing your freedom to see other people. That is a restriction. You are restricted from doing that. <laughs> Why? So that you can enjoy the, the greater freedom of, so you can have the greater freedom of enjoying deep, intimate relationship with the one that you love. I'm restricting that freedom so that I can be free to enjoy this relationship. You see, true freedom isn't the absence of restrictions. True freedom is living with the right restrictions that allow you to enjoy the deeper freedoms of that which is better. You see, a fish on the shore isn't actually free. That's an absence of restriction. But the fish on the shore isn't actually free because the fish wasn't designed for land. But fish were designed to flourish and live within the restrictive environment of the water. In the grace of God, in Jesus, he sets us free from the penalty of sin. He sets us free from the power of sin and he sets us free to live in and pursue righteousness and holy living, to live according to God's good design for our lives. Not so that we would, you know, we would hate our walk with Christ, but so that we could enjoy and flourish within the fellowship and communion that comes through holy living because we have been set free. So my question to you this morning for those of you who have yet to receive the grace of God in Jesus Christ, to those of you who are caught in the shame of your sin, what keeps you this morning from receiving God's free grace in Christ? Something you cannot earn, but is offered up to you freely, but not so that you can go and live however you want, but so that you can now live according to God's good design, receive God's grace in Jesus Christ this morning. Now, maybe you've, already, maybe you've already done that. Maybe, you've already, maybe you already identify as a Christian. You've already, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, you've been freed from sin's penalty, from sin's power, and for walking in righteousness. My question to you, this well, really a statement, I suppose. Christian, stop jumping out of the waters of God's good design. Stop jumping out of those waters onto the shores of your fleshly desires. You are forfeiting intimate, close communion with God himself. In Christ, guilty sinners 
are not condemned, but we are set free to live in righteousness, to enjoy living according to God's design and enjoying intimate relationship with him. What sin in your life are you hiding? What sin in your life are you coddling? What sin in your life, Christian, are you, are you entertaining, are you holding on to that you think brings life but actually brings death? Jump back into the waters of God's design for your life and enjoy deep relationship with him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, into the world not to save healthy people, not to save perfect people, but to save sinners like us. Those who stand before you guilty with no excuse, in shame, deserving of condemnation. Oh Jesus, thank you for taking the rock of God's wrath on our behalf that we might receive your free grace. And Holy Spirit, would you empower us this morning and this week as we walk, would we pursue holiness and righteousness, not because we think we're earning your favor, but because you have shown us favor in Christ. Would we live in joyful obedience with happy hearts? Oh, Spirit, help us to live in such a way. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.